my name is Brandon Boat, and you're listening to the Theater of Public Policy podcast. Our guest for this show is James Eli Schiffer, who's been a reporter and editor for more than 20 years. Since 2005, he's worked at the Star Tribune and currently leads their watchdog and data team, Full Disclosure. He's also the author of The King of Skid Row, John Basich, and the Twilight Years of Old Minneapolis. We had James on the show and talked about the subject of his book, which uh, was a 25-block region of downtown Minneapolis that used to uh, provide a community for a lot of the railroad workers and people who were more kind of transient and not sticking to one place. And there was a very strong community, even though from outward appearances it would look like uh, brothels and bars and flop houses and all those sorts of things. And what ended up happening is this whole community got uh, bulldozed in one of the first national uh, urban renewal projects, the first of its kind. And we talked about what that community was and what we may have lost in doing that uh, project where we decided to fix it up and change it into something different. I hope you enjoy the show. This is, I, I, uh, I'm not being overly flattering to say I, I really, ha- I've been reading the book and I, which is more research than I do for a lot of shows. Uh, and it's, it's really good. And I say that uh, being in grad school and reading mostly like academic papers and political memoirs, that this is actually well written. Well, thank so you. thank you uh, for doing this. Thanks. Um, Thanks for having me. Uh, so I, there's, there's a ton to try and get through. And I should say in the second half of the show, we open it up to all of you to ask questions. But let's just sort of set the scene uh, to really at the beginning. So uh, when we're talking about Skid Row and, and the folks and the people that you're talking about, when and where are we? Okay, we're in the middle of downtown Minneapolis, where Hennepin, Nicollet, and Washington come together, okay? If you can imagine, it's not much there right now. There's an insurance building, but that was the heart of town, and it was the oldest part of Minneapolis, and uh, it was the oldest buildings in Minneapolis, and it was, it, it was populated by um, seasonal laborers, who were, uh, would come to Minneapolis to get hired to work on the railroads, to, get w- to work in the, uh, you know, the pineries up north and the farms, and then they would come to Minneapolis, usually in the wintertime, uh, live in these flop houses and spend all their money on liquor. And I, we should even, I, I, I imagine most folks know what a flop house is, but I mean, just, I, it probably has gotten almost jargonized to some degree, but I mean, flop house almost has, it has a definition. So when we say flop house in this term, uh, what, do you want to say? It's not Airbnb. Uh, it's slightly well, different. I imagine there's probably some Airbnbs that are like this. Um, <laughs> if, you can, if you can imagine, these were old commercial buildings, and they took the upper floors, and they built all these partitions that were like five feet by five feet or six feet by eight feet. They'd cover the top of it with a chicken wire, so it looked like a cage, and they had a door. And uh, these guys, they'd rent for 50 cents a night and less for a week. And uh, you all shared a bathroom. And the reason why it didn't have a roof on it was for ventilation. But the chicken wire is there to keep people from stealing your stuff. And the, the, this is amazing. So uh, because it, cause you would think, well, there's a wall. Doesn't the wall keep people from stealing stuff? Well, coming through the side, yeah. But come, if they're coming over the top, Because they would come something. over the top. Okay, they would. Uh, oh, yeah. So we're going to get to more. Of the, uh, we should say Utah, it's the middle of the 20th century. But right. I didn't tell you when this was. Yeah. Say, okay. say <laughs> more about when. Because Skid Row, uh, I mean, it has a longer history oh, than it does. me. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No. I mean, by the 1890s, Minneapolis was already starting to get worried about the middle of town. You know, business had kind of moved south down Nicollet 
And, uh, you know, the old part was starting to crumble and fall apart. But we're, by the 1890s, but we're talking the 1950s at this point. It really, these, these uh, cage hotels were outlawed in 1918, new ones. But they kept, they kept the old ones, the grandfather, all the way through the early 1960s. And there are some, should you want to visit someplace like this. There if you're are, looking for a place to stay tonight. Th there is at least one that I know of in Chicago. And there's one in New York City on the Bowery. And it was converted into um, fancy hotel rooms for Germans. For Germans specifically? I didn't know you were allowed to do that. Um, it seems like Germans are the only ones who stay there. Okay. I, um, I mean, because it's, it's essentially still a flop house. It just costs like $100 a night. Th that's, a bad, that's a great business model? I can't decide. Um, so uh, so you, you kind of alluded to my, my next question already, which is that uh, the city was nervous and worried about uh, the middle part of downtown. Can you say a little bit more about what did that worry about Skid Row and the... Why the, were they worried? No, no well, oh. what, what were they worried about and what did they try and do before we get to well, sort of the climax of this book? You know, by the 1950s, American cities were really starting to... Uh, get worried about their own survival. I mean, the, the highway system, a lot of people moved to the suburbs. You had Southdale opening in 1956. It was like all the retail was moving to the suburbs. And General Mills moved its headquarters to Golden Valley. So the city of Minneapolis was really worried about its survival. At that point, people still took trains to get places, right? And they get out of the train station, the Great Northern Station or Milwaukee Station, and they'd be faced with Skid Row. They'd walk out the door and there's a bunch of cheap bars, there's a bunch of guys brawling on the sidewalks, and just, um, you know, nasty sort of uh, crumbling buildings and secondhand stores, and they're like, this is Minneapolis? <laughs> you know, and, the, the, you know, the city was very image conscious, and they're just like, we have to do something about this, our city is going to die. And, and so they, before, again, we get to sort of the climax of this, they tried other ways mm -hmm. to make the Gateway District, downtown Minneapolis, right. uh, a better, more inviting place. So what yes. were some of the things they did that didn't work? Well, the, the Gateway District itself was a marketing term. Like, they, that was invented in 100 years ago during the sort of City Beautiful movement. They built um, a park, Gateway Park. A little piece of it is still there at Hennepin in front of the insurance building. You may see it. No one ever goes there. But they built this park with this beautiful Beaux-Arts pavilion, and quickly became a place for people to just like piss on the wall, essentially. Oh. It was, so that didn't work out so well. Um, they built the Nicollet Hotel, which was uh, uh, this uh, gigantic fortress-like hotel, really fancy. And I'm kidding you not, this is actually the truth. The guys also pissed on the wall that place, and it was, became well known for that. And then finally, if this ends with men pissing on a no, wall. No, 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 the next one doesn't. It doesn't. I'm sorry. I, I don't mean to be really prurient here. I know well, it's a mixed, not your fault. Mixed, you're just, you're just a, a reporter. Audience. Um, um, but in 1931, they built this gigantic post office, which is still there. It kind of blocks off downtown from the from the river. But that um, that and they built a park in front of it, and that replaced a kind of a well-known row of brothels that were there. Okay. Well, I mean, we we all make mistakes. I mean, I'm told um, it was well known. <laughs> But so uh, one of the things that I, I honestly really like about this book is that uh, other folks have talked about it, and I think that you originally even got interested in some of this because of the architecture, because part of yeah. the question is uh, why do we have sort of surface parking lots in right. a lot of downtown? But you spend the majority of the book talking about the actual guys and right. and some of them. So can you just, just – you, you started – they were seasonal laborers mm -hmm. and whatnot, but – 
uh, describe these guys to us. And they were almost entirely guys, almost right? Entirely guys. Almost entirely white guys, too. And um, they were the last generation of these seasonal laborers. A lot of them were retired or disabled. And they uh, had sort of decided they didn't want families. You know, they wanted to live cheek by jowl with other guys like themselves and in these very close conditions. And um, they would, a lot of them were veterans and um, from, a lot of them from the South as well, retired railroad workers. Uh, John Bassich uh, called them um, gandy dancers. Which, know. can you explain this term gandy dancer? Because I'm worried somebody's going to call me that and I don't know how to take it. <laughs> Um, no one really knows where that term comes Gandy from. Gandy dancer. No, no, I've, I've heard many explanations, but I mean, it refers to a railroad, like a sort of a migrant railroad worker. Okay. And actually, after I, um, uh, after this book was published, I was actually contacted by a former Gandy dancer. Really? Yes. Did they show you the dance? He's in Utah, so he was not They aren't allowed to, to dance. No. Um, <laughs> so... Uh, so they were my, uh, they were, um, and uh, this is one of the things that I was really curious, and I can't, I, again, both reading the book and uh, doing some, uh, I feel like there's some disagreement about these men. We think about these kind of conditions that they were living in and where they were living, and we might think uh, retrospectively, oh, you know, they were the ones just left behind by society, but at least your subject seems to suggest uh, a lot of them chose this. Oh, yeah. This was what they wanted. It uh, was. Uh, this was the life that they actually wanted. So I, it sounds like that is more or less Oh, I think so. Yeah. And I think, you know, if there was anything I was trying to accomplish with this book, it was an idea that this was a real community. You know, it was not a community that the 1950s was very fond of. As a matter of fact, they were considered deviant in the view of the rest of, you know, a, a normal family living arrangement, you know, would be a... a uh, husband and wife with two kids and a picket fence and a rambler in Richfield. That was, that was sort of a normal existence. A bunch of guys who chose to live with other guys in these conditions were deviant and were really basically, we needed to just get them into more normal situation in order to cure them of whatever ailed them in the first place. And so this is a great opportunity. I did want you to read uh, a mm -hmm. portion of this book, which uh, I picked out. So I'll set this up as you're finding your page. So this is, there it. were two right-wing journalists. Is that the right, that's how you describe <laughs> them? That's what I them, called them, yeah. Uh, who wrote about uh, places all over America, and they wrote about uh, Minneapolis. And so, uh, yeah, I'll, yeah, I'll leave it there. Okay. And yeah. this is them describing Minneapolis. Yes. Yeah. In 1952, right-wing journalist Jack Layton and Lee Mortimer published a kind of travel guide for sleaze called USA Confidential. And their chapter on Minnesota set their poison pens loose on the gateway. Aside from the prostitutes swarming Hennepin Avenue, they wrote, there is a huge population of transients, railroad workers, migratory farmhands, and roughneck woodsmen from the North Woods in Canada, as well as drifting hobos. Sooner or later, they gravitate to Minneapolis. There they would find a, quote, terrible skid row. Quote, we have seen all the dives in the land, and few are quite as bad as the Chez Paris, the Bowery, the 114, the Persian Palms, and the Arabian Nights, all of which cater to the lowest winos and the blousiest hags. A sign over the hotel bar proclaims, rooms, 50 cents, no questions asked either. <laughs> We're number one, yeah! <laughs> 
Minneapolis Pride. Um, Bragg, Minneapolis. What was that? Uh, so, uh, uh, so I, I love that description. So, I mean, I think that this is uh, the one of the really interesting sociological things is both on both sides of this because uh, they were seen very much as deviants. Uh, uh, but they saw that they saw this as like a freedom that this was like their only opportunity to sort of and and it did your book did get me thinking then if you wanted to be a deviant today mm-hmm. I don't know if it's easier or harder. Um, you know that's an excellent question. It, get it, how to be you know whether it's easier to be deviant I don't know that that's a question for me. Uh, <laughs> fair enough. Uh, fair <laughs> enough. So uh, this uh, this was panicking uh, the city and yes. and folks. And so, uh, as we talked about, they tried to build various nice things and whatnot, and yet they still had this very persistent, very clustered. Um, uh, I should ask one question uh, more about the people who are there. We talked about that they're men, uh, and you keep talking about them sleeping, you know, cheek to jowl. I, I mean, the, you're... I don't know if you're intentionally, but you're very much there's a suggestion. Are they, were they gay men largely, or just um, some of them? Or? You know, I mean, here's the interesting thing. I think there were plenty of gay men in in the Gateway, um, and this this whole neighborhood was extensively studied by the University of Minnesota sociology department. They sent students in disguise into <laughs> into these flop houses and bars. As a student of the University of Minnesota right now, I just want to say their, their field work is lacking these days. The, I did not get any kind of costume to wear as part of my schooling. Um, well, any, but I mean, they did everything. They counted the number of urinals. They sort of wrote down the script for the panhandlers. They were just so, you know, the number of used suits. Well, the one thing they said about sexuality, very little. Okay, they said, it is believed that homosexuality is prevalent. But no effort was made to assess the extent of it. <laughs> so there were some places even the University of Minnesota was, would not dare to go. Uh, and, <laughs> uh, so, and then the other one that I wanted to ask about, because I think it's actually interesting, is uh, Skid Row has this uh, reputation of being uh, a really hard place to live, but they talk about at least that uh, women were treated well here, and I don't know if that's true or not, or it's just sort of what they presented. Um, well, you know, that was always, that's what Johnny said, and, you know, he did, uh, there were sort of women, there were uh, very few, he describes prostitutes in particular, but he said, yeah, my guys always never heard him swear around a woman, um, although he does re- relate that uh, a... Um, a uh, girls' basketball team wanted to stay in his flop house, not knowing what it was. And they called him and said, you know, we want to reserve a block of rooms. And he just said, you don't want to do that. And, and, and the idea was that if they, these innocent, you know, uh, farm country girls would show just up, they would be Mankato cooked and eaten alive, you know. And uh, I mean, it was just sort of an impression that it was like, this was not a place for them. So uh, this is great. This is a great opportunity. So your book is John Bassich and the Twilight Years. So who is John Bassich? Right. He owned a bar, a flop house, and a liquor store, uh, sort of the trifecta on Skid Row. And um, he was, uh, but also was kind of an amateur documentarian, too. I mean, he had a 16-millimeter film camera. A lot of you may have seen the movie. It's on my website, kingofskidrow.com, if you want to see it with his voiceover. He thought of these guys as his family wanted to capture. He knew this world wasn't long. 
Uh, I mean, it wasn't long for this world, so he wanted to sort of make movies of it, take pictures of his guys. Um, it, it was just an amazing thing that he did to sort of preserve this community. I mean, how did he get into this initially? Because he he didn't he wasn't actually from Minneapolis originally. No, right? he was originally he was from northern uh, you know Superior, uh, Wisconsin, Duluth area. Uh, his dad was a, a bootlegger and then a real estate speculator, moved to, to St. Paul during Prohibition. Um, and John served like six years during the you know, World War II era. And um, you know, had, his dad had also been in the nightclub business. And so it was all he kind of knew. And you know, he was kind of a guy who did, sold insurance for a while, didn't work out. So he was just going to open a liquor store on Skid Row. And we should say that it, it's actually somewhat miraculous, right, that he was even able to open a yes. liquor store and, yes. a, and a bar and whatnot because it wasn't just that you sort of filed the paperwork no. and you did it. It was, much, it was more complicated in different ways then. Well, yes, it was uh, – liquor has always – Minneapolis has always had a tortured relationship with liquor. And, and you know, getting a liquor license was uh, – a uh, matter of knowing and paying off the right aldermen, paying off the cops. It was it was very uh, corrupt, and it's part of you know you limit the supply. It gangsters kind of took over that whole thing, and um, so he was able to do it after you know having a, a, a contact on the city council. And um, but he got really sick of the liquor business after, after do, a pretty I mean, short time. Do you know? Can we, do you know much, or does he talk much about how he was able to sort of? Uh, break. I mean, yes, he had the contact, right. but the mob seems like the harder thing. Well, like but the, the city mob, council, the mob didn't. With. The mob was more interested in a liquor license in a place like this, which was like on Lake Street. I mean, that was precious, right? You know, to have one down here where people actually had money. Selling Muscatel to a bunch of winos was not a recipe for uh, big money, you know. So it was like they were less interested in. And he was friends with some of the gangsters too, so they kind of left them alone. So. Uh, John, and the title of your book, The King of Skid Row, comes from the fact that nobody could say his last name, right? right? So his lawyer, Scoop Loman, came up with a – he said, well, just call you Johnny Rex because you're the king of Skid Row. You know, you're the king. He's – you know, he had a vertically integrated enterprise, you know. <laughs> and I'm curious. So uh, he was documenting this, and you said a little bit about this and that he saw them as family. But I, I, I think that that's sort of one of the central questions of the book is uh, – why? Why was he so driven to capture all of this? Because it seemed it was a lot of work on top of yeah. running uh, three was. businesses. It was. He was also doing a, a TPT documentary like 40 years I, I before know. TPT would pick I it know. up. And, and we're very fortunate. I mean, the University of Minnesota really plays a role here because that film might never have been made into a film, you know, except uh, his, uh, his second wife was a student, was a law student. She had seen an exhibit of uh, of photos of the gateway including his bar someone else had taken an artist she's like oh you know she introduced uh him to like jerome liebling at the university of minnesota and this film came out of that it was really serendipity in a lot of ways um and that you know that we have this who knows what would have happened to it uh so i I, again we're gonna open it up to you all for questions in the second half but i want to try and get through the major points of the story here so uh, we've got Skid Row and we've got uh, John running this and he's capturing a lot of this. So uh, we said the city really wanted to get rid of this. And yes. so ultimately, how, how did they get around to actually well, the, the doing fe- this? Well, the federal government, in, in responding to all the problems of cities in the 1950s, suddenly you know, the Housing and Urban Development you know, Department was created, Federal Housing Act, poured tons and tons of money into American cities to do things like build highways and 
destroy slums, slum clearance. And Minneapolis was going to be a sort of leader in the country in its vision of a, a new modern city. So they, this was the largest downtown urban renewal project of its time. And the first, right? Yeah, it was the first. I think there have been bigger ones since then. But it was 40% of downtown were just like, we just need to start over. So they just – it's amazing to think about it. They negotiated with all these property owners and, and just knocked everything down. And it was just this – you know, clear-cutting, as Larry Millette calls it, this clear-cutting of old buildings, and that's why we don't have an old city anymore. But the idea was it was just like the buildings are the problem. There are rats running between them. There's nothing we can do for these buildings. We just need to rip them down. Were there people, though, on the other side who were arguing the point of view of, uh, you know, the rats will go somewhere else, or the people who are living there will just go somewhere else? Well, they were. They were really worried about that. As a matter of fact, what to do with these guys was a problem. Because it was, they wanted to, uh, they didn't feel like it was right to just tell them to, you know, get out of here, we're going to demolish your house. But they were, you know, they said, okay, we're going to put them all in one building, one housing project. And the neighborhood was like, no way. Where was that going to be? You know, they were nine different places they wanted to put it. And every time the city council, the aldermen over there, no way. And then they eventually, they're just like, you guys are on your own. But if you find a place to live and you come back, we'll give you five bucks. For like telling us where you went, five bucks. Five bucks. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Um, so but that's only if you found a place to live first. That was your reward. Uh, so, uh, so they 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 just uh, clear cut. How long does it take them to clear cut? It was about three or four years. Like the the Metropolitan Building, which was the most famous casualty of this era, which was the only one that really people fought. That was the you know landmark first skyscraper west of the Mississippi. That one they fought all the, the preservationists fought all the way to the Supreme Court and lost. But that's the only one, and that building took a long time to knock down. It was really well built, but that was like the last one. So, do we know what then uh, what happened to the guys who? You were- know, it's an excellent question. Nobody really kept track of them, and I, you know, I looked in archives and things. I couldn't find anything that said here's where they all went. There's a couple places where they kind of showed up, which was South uh, Nicollet between Grant and Franklin, um, Seven Corners, you know, where Cedar and Washington come together, Broadway and uh, Washington Avenue, those sorts of places. But, you know, all the suburbs were terrified that these guys were going to just show up en masse and start <laughs> boozing it up. Like Maple yeah. Grove. It's like- oh, they were, there was one guy who called himself Mr. Skid Row, and he said, you know, if you don't find a nice place to, uh, for us to live, we're going to go to Golden Valley, or we're going to go to <laughs> Dinah or Bloomington. And they were just, like, terrified. Uh, I love that. Uh, poor Golden Valley. Uh, so um, uh, uh, the last piece of this I wanted to ask then was the logic of that um, urban renewal and sort of clear-cutting and uh, trying to address what was seen as a problem, and I think it's even a debatable thing how much of a problem on one side or the other it is. But I guess the question, did it work? Like, did it accomplish what the city wanted it to accomplish? Well, it got rid of these guys. I mean, really. I mean, it was, it was, it, it, it enabled them to build the kind of city they thought they wanted. But, you know, who did want, it though? I mean, we well, who wants to go there lots. now? Yeah, but yeah. I mean, that was better in their view than these guys like wrestling on the sidewalk and beating the crap out of each other. Can I we mean, just that, say how they wrestled? Because it's one of my favorite parts. Yeah, of well, this. There, there, were, there were these two guys. There's a picture of them in here and they're featured in the movie. Emil Teske and, and Nick Feastall. And their favorite thing to do is to grab hold of each other's noses. But I mean, <laughs> with a serious grip. I mean, this was not like just tweaking. I mean, this was like crushing each other's nose and they'd be throwing each other on the sidewalk constantly 
I mean, I don't know how they survived that. I don't know. We should go to Golden Valley and ask them. Um, uh, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to bring James Schiffer back in the second half of the show. But for right now, can we do a big round of applause for Thank him? You. Okay. So if you have a question, please just raise your hand. I will race towards you with this microphone in a non-threatening manner. Uh, so, uh, questions? There's one. In the back, in the front. So whatever happened to John Kasich? Oh. <laughs> uh, yes, that was an interesting twist. Um. Um, if you're asking about John Bassett, he died in uh, November 2012, but I spent about three years interviewing him before that. I think that this is actually really interesting. How did you connect with John uh, Basich in the first place? Well, I thought, you know, I was interested after I saw that documentary, I was interested in what happened to all his still photos. And because he took pictures of every guy who lived in his flop house. And I was like, saw some of them in the, um, in the uh, documentary. And I'm like, what happened to the rest of them? And uh, so I figured he was, would have been too old to be, still be around. But um, so I called and left a message for his wife in Florida. And she called me back and I said, you know, Miss Passage, you know, I'd really love to know what happened to those those old photos of John's, you know? And she said, well, why don't you ask him? So she put them on, and he's like, oh, yeah, they're in California. I'll have them sent to you. I'm like, oh, my gosh, this guy's still with it, you know? He's totally there. So um, he spent his winters in Florida and, and summers in Minnesota, and when he came back, uh, I met him in, in the Starbucks and the building he owned in South Minneapolis and sort of went from there. Can, can we just point out how he moved from having a flop house to owning a Starbucks? Uh, <laughs> Well, they're not as far apart as you'd think. Okay. Uh, other questions? Uh, there was a hand, I think. Oh, I'll come here. If there was another hand in the back, raise it high. Did you have any other primary source materials, or was it largely his materials? No, I actually I was fortunate. The Star Tribune had a really uh, a great archive of um, just clip files for decades, you know, and I could look in those. And, and what the amazing thing was is when you could compare his stories – against the sort of what was reported in the newspaper at the time, he's, his memory was just right on. It was just phenomenal. You know, it's not always that way. You know, he's like, oh, it's such a great story, but it's just not true. Um, so that was, I did some archival work at the city, but most of it was um, news accounts. And, um, and uh, yeah, I mean, I interviewed a few other people, including some of the former sort of graduate student imposters, you know, transient imposters who are still went on to luminous careers in sociology. Okay, there's a hand over here. Okay, question. Uh, I've got a question in me. Uh, the post office, the landmark of the era closing out, um, now said to be uh, ugly, uh, eyesore. Uh, we want to make it into a trendy farmer's market. Um, is this the kind of, would you say this is the kind of uh, democratic gentrification, uh, deeming something uh, from a, another era that's no longer relevant. Uh, is, this, uh, is this how it goes? Well, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't think the post office is an ugly building. I think it's, a, it's an incredible building. And, and, um, but, you know, um, people don't use the post office as much as they used to. I mean, I love getting letters. I don't know if you people write any letters anymore. I love it. Um, but, I mean, I think rather than tear it down, which has basically been Minneapolis's um, 
sort of Minneapolis's practice in the past is to reuse that building when it's not really needed for the post office anymore. I think, you know, it's got this wonderful sort of balcony overlooking the Mississippi River that would just be, it's never used for anything. I think it would be awesome to have it um, to be a space that the public could get into again. I mean, rather than just tearing it down, I think reusing it is... I, I, I think that there's some uh, there's something more that's interesting to dig into here, though, which is sort of looking at what this the urban renewal projects that happened in the late 50s, early 60s. I mean, what do we what do we learn from that in terms of sort of the tension between uh, wanting to renew and revitalize a city with sort of just the, the destruction that goes along with that? I don't know. Do you have takeaways as to were there lessons learned from that? Oh, oh, I think so. I mean, I think, and it's not as simple as, well, you know, they should have just kept everything. Because we all know what would happen if you just kept everything and never tore it down. You'd be St. Paul. (laughs) Sorry. Um, No, seriously. I mean, you know, at at the time, you'd you'd think, you'd, you'd think that, <clears throat> it was there was not a lot of alternative that Minneapolis saw. I mean, they th- saw this as their, you know, the difference between life and death. And I would argue that Minneapolis is it, it, it's a city that thinks big, and sometimes it doesn't work out. But I think we're a better city for thinking big than for not doing anything at all. You know, I mean, I think there's a lesson there. Uh, other hands. Oh, I'll come over here. Oh, both of these here. Um, was homelessness an issue at that time? And when those flap, ho- flop houses went away, did it all of a sudden become the issue that it is today? Well, that's that's really interesting um, question because, <clears throat> excuse me, um, that these guys were all described as homeless at the time. They were called homeless, even though they lived in these places and lived in them for years and years. They were in the modern description of the 1950s. They were homeless because they didn't live with a sort of nuclear family somewhere. Um, I don't, you see, it's, the records are just not great on where these guys went. So I don't know. There was definitely concern that street, there were street people showing up in other parts of town, but not in a massive scale, like suddenly 3,000 people were here and there, because a lot of them were old. And they were not sort of being replaced by younger Gandhi dancers. I think if they had just sort of left it alone for 10 years, it probably would have, uh, um, you know, a, a lot of these guys would have, you know, died out or, you know, um, it, and, the, and you wouldn't have that same sort of sense that, oh, my gosh, this population is never going to disperse. So the, the, the records really aren't good. They didn't, you know, once the buildings were gone, they kind of lost a lot of interest in what happened to the people who lived there. Well, I think this is another interesting one to sort of swing back to that, uh, the diagnosing of the quote-unquote problem, because as we talked about in the first half, these weren't uh, guys who were necessarily homeless for lack of opportunity or lack of jobs. A lot of them had families, actually, at least according to John, uh, and chose to do this. Yes, yeah. They weren't really, you know, they, this was a place where they wanted to live and they could pay for it. And they were not, I mean, some of them were street people. There definitely were hobos. I mean, there were definitely people who came in on the train, and they'd live in the woods around the train stations, and then they'd leave town very quickly. So, yeah, and, but some of them had just kind of like eschewed their life, their sort of domestic life, because they wanted to live in this environment. Okay, so I have two hands, uh, one all the way up, that one here, and then one right here. 
I was just, is there any documentarian about um, the crime situation there and how many arrests were made in that area oh, between yeah. the men lots. and the prostitutes? Oh, yeah. No, there was lots of documentation of that. That was one of the big arguments as to why they wanted to get rid of it because there was this cycle where people would get arrested like every Saturday night or every Friday night. They'd go to jail. They'd spend some time there. They'd get thrown, you know, thrown out of jail again. And it was just this cycle that contributed to them you know they couldn't pay their fines so they get put back in jail so yeah i mean most 95 percent of the arrests in that area were like for drunkenness i mean it was just for being drunk and on the street so yeah i mean that was a big argument for why they need to get rid of it the police just had to spend so much resources down there arresting and that's actually not that different there is um in minneapolis today there's like you know, your downtown cop could tell you there's a small population of people that they just keep putting in jail night after night after night after night. Okay, we had a hand up here. Yeah. So how did prohibition affect Skid Row? Um, it was, uh, it definitely concentrated, like the, that part of town, they really thought it was going to be helped by Gateway Park, which was built in, you know, during, um, like, 1916, 1913, 1916, they built the Nicollet Hotel in 1924. There was a feeling they were going to get a handle on this part of town and clean it up. But then Prohibition, uh, Prohibition and then the Great Depression, the Great Depression was really what turned it, turned it around. I, I think during Prohibition, the, um, uh, you know, the, the, I don't think it was any mystery that the alcohol just kept getting sold. Um, you know, without really any interruption. But, um, you know, the big change, I think, in the neighborhood came right after that with the Great Depression. That's when it really went downhill. Um, I know, uh, you know, I know a lot more about the kind of later years than sort of all the, the but there is a, a, a very good history of the whole span of the Gateway District by David Rosheim called The Other Minneapolis. It's a very good book if you haven't, hey, haven't read it because it covers a lot of the area that I don't, time frame that I don't cover in this book. Okay, so there was right here. Um, there's been a recent resurgence of uh, public sauna uh, culture in Minneapolis and mm -hmm. also uh, bathhouses across uh, around the country. Um, and there is uh, written into current zoning laws in Minneapolis that saunas are seen as kind of a um, place of sexual misconduct. And so I'm wondering if um, saunas and bathhouses were a part of Skid Row at this time. You know... I don't think so. I know they were part of Skid Rows in other um, in other cities. I know they became a big issue in Minneapolis in the in the late seventies, in the seventies, and even the early eighties. The whole bathhouse, the police were raiding the bathhouses um, later. So that's much more recently. It wasn't as I don't recall seeing a lot of that being an issue in the fifties and sixties. But in Minneapolis, I mean, it's like it definitely was. Uh, it was it was part of the sort of oppression of gay people by the Minneapolis police in the 70s and 80s. Okay, uh, up here. Uh, it's easy to look back and say, oh, they made these decisions about Skid Row that were, some of them were okay, we can see why they made them in the past. What are the things that we're looking at now for Minneapolis that are sort of equivalent situations to what was going on in Skid Row back then? Wow, that's a great question. Today, oh wow, you know, um, hmm. I can tell you just from personal experience, uh, the things that I've seen happen, and, and this is, I'm going to be a little self-indulgent here, I happen to really like dive bars, okay? Um, and a lot of them are going away. And I, I can't help but think that that's 
we're losing something as a city. We're losing some of the character of the city. I mean, some of these places are definitely menacing. You know, um, they're not friendly. Not this place, by the <laughs> way. Uh, we are very happy to be here. Uh, um, but I mean, you know, in terms of like the broader kind of sense of, uh, it's it's hard for me to see exactly uh, a um, exactly a comparison to to Skid Row because there's nothing really quite like it. Just that concentration. It's hard for me to think about that. I know that was a lot of the concern with the Green Line going in in St. Paul was that that immigrant business corridor was just going to be swept away and all these you know, yuppies are going to move in these condos and, and uh, you know, all of the, the immigrants, hardworking immigrants that open these restaurants and grocery stores are going to be uh, moved out of there. Um, you know, whether that's happening or not, I don't know as much, but I think that would be the closest probably to, to this event. Well, that, I mean, that was going to be my so, a, a, a version of that. I was going to ask is sort of uh, having, you know, looked at all this research, uh, both as far as what the city was thinking and what happened to these guys. What do we what do we learn from this as far as maybe not a specific like we're going to do exactly what we did with that again. But if you're thinking about um, cities trying to shape their own future uh, or trying to address a problem, what do, what do we take from this this case study. well i mean i think what it what it shows is that cities are are by their nature sort of dynamic and they're they're sort of impossible to to control you know it's like the sometimes the the most interesting part of the city is not the thing that you're going to have in the chamber of commerce brochure and that there's just you know there's a grittiness that is also it has character it has personality and it's it's uh um you know, you can clean things up to a certain extent. But you can clean them up to the point where it's almost not a city anymore. It's just kind of boring. You so know? is that a much more almost libertarian view then? You just let it go? Or? Well, I don't think – I mean, it's libertarian. I, mean, I don't think you can control it. I mean, as much as we try hard to do it, I think, you know, cities will continue to just develop in ways that people – uh, you know, I think they'll continue to be interesting. It's why I love this city and love cities in general is because it's just – it is so – um, things, good things happen without anybody planning it. You know, it just kind of happens. And, uh, you know, but it's not to say that we should just let things just go. <laughs> but, I mean, I think it's, um, you know, it's, you're sort of like, whenever you make a change, it's like there's, there's good things and bad things, you know. And I think um, we, we look at it in the lens of today, we think, wow, that must have been really interesting. These people, they were like real people and they were interesting. But, you know, did I really want to spend time on the sidewalk with somebody who's like, you know, pissing on me? I don't think so. <laughs> on that, on that <laughs> profound note, ladies and gentlemen, uh, the amazing James Shepard. The book Woo! is fantastic. Uh, King of Skid Row, give him a big round of applause. Thank you, Tane. Amazing host. Thank you for listening. This show was recorded live at the Bryant Lake Bowl in Minneapolis. If you're interested in coming to an upcoming show, you can find all those details at www.t2p2.net.